0: another planet entertainment i'm on promoter 101
1: hey 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 hey! hey, it's promoter 101 we're back on the air joining me right now filling in for w luke pierce is psycho steve chilton phoenix's own right here in promoter 101 welcome back to the podcast my friend steven
0: thanks for having me dan and thanks to luke for not being here so i can fill in it is his honor not to be here today we have a supersized show as we have Brilliant Corners artist management's Jordan Curland, who represents Death Cab for Cutie, the Postal Service, Toro Mimois, Best Coast, Soccer Mommy, Love Soccer Mommy, Real Estate, New Pornographers, Josh Ritter, and Pup, Love Pup as well. As well as politically active and involved with a handful of nonprofits, Jordan is a partner in noise pop industries, and we'll discuss how he balances it all.
1: Also, Hillary Zuckerberg is here to talk Why Hunger? Artists Against Hunger and Poverty, right here this week on Promoter 101. Excited for that.
0: And we have DMG's Russell Dusan chats about his new shop.
1: That's right. Episode 226. Starts right now.
0: Hey, this is Bill Silva from Bill Silva Entertainment. You are listening to Promoter 101.
1: However you found us, however you got your way here, feel free to reach out to me and Luke. Hit us up on the internet with your requests, your topics, your concerns, your dietary issues. That's Steiny at Promoter101.net. Operators are standing by. Come join
0: Promoter One Hundred and One in the conversation on Twitter. This show is Promoter One Hundred and One. Luke is W. Luke Pierce, and Dan is at the Jew Instagram. The show is at Steiny Promoter One Hundred and One. Dan is at Dan Presents. Luke is at. W. Luke Pierce, and I'm at Psycho Steve.
1: Also, we're on Clubhouse, the second Saturday morning of every month. Join us for the Promoter 101 Clubhouse Book Club. We meet this Saturday, May 8th, 8.30 a.m. Pacific, 11.30 a.m. Eastern, with very special guest discussing Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Please pick up a hard copy or the audiobook and join us May 8th on Clubhouse at 830 Pacific Standard Time to discuss. You don't even have to read the book. You can come to preview the book. But we've got some great guests. Smitty's gonna be with us Sean Striegel's gonna be with us And Larry Weintraub will be with us And of course me and Luke will be hanging So it's gonna be a good time The Book Club this Saturday May 8th, 8.30 a.m. Pacific 11.30 a.m. Eastern Come check it out
0: I got to still finish reading the book for that. It's going to be fun.
1: Are you reading it?
0: Yeah. Game on. You can now find us on Clubhouse every Tuesday night at 6.30 PM Pacific, 9.30 Eastern. Promoter 101 Storytellers Live, a new weekly interview series as part of Promoter 101 on Clubhouse. Iconic guests sharing some of their favorite industry tales followed by a Q&A moderated by Dan. This week's guest on May 11th is Wayne Forte. May 18th is Jake Gold. And closing out the series on May 25th is Dick Wingate.
1: Hey, this is Michael
0: McDonald with Mick Management, and you are on Promoter 101. News of the Week.
1: So, Steve, there's a lot going on out there right now. Shows are starting to come back. We're seeing good on-sales. We're seeing a lot of traffic on the road. We're seeing one-offs. We're seeing weekends. And we're starting to see bands put full-on tours on sale. Are you seeing much of that in Arizona?
0: Oh, absolutely. Arizona's back open in a lot of ways. It's starting to see some small shows.
1: And are you guys open at your venue?
0: We've started doing some small local social distance things, kind of putting our feet back in, trying some things out. So I think we're thinking June for starting some full capacity shows.
1: Awesome. Red Rock started doing shows socially distanced at lower capacity last week. The big famous horse rate, the Derby, had 50,000 people in attendance this last weekend. We're seeing on sales everywhere. Emporium promoted our first show this past weekend in Huntsville, Alabama. Excited to say Black and Symphony played to a sold-out crowd. Socially distanced and safe, I may add. And I took my first trip... On an airplane in 13 months, I got to see you, Steve, and have Portillo's with our good friend Randy Vogel. That was a fun, fun night and way too long. It's been way too long since we got to hug. It was great. It was
0: fun hanging out. And then totally randomly after, Randy took me to see Alice Cooper. And I saw a real
1: concert on a stage. And it was pretty awesome. Randy Vogel, Alice Cooper, Portillo's all in one night could only happen in Phoenix, Arizona. You got to love it. There is all sorts of new agencies popping up as a result of COVID. And now a few new promoters have started to pop their heads up. Right now, brand new announcement. DMG Presents. Russell Doucet has hung his own shingle and is back in the game. And he's here to talk about it. Congratulations and welcome to the show, Russell. How does it feel out there being a brand new indie again? Familiar, but different. (laughs) You know, I was in Indy for 11 and a half years. It has some good things, some anxious things, right? I mean, I think when you work in a structure for so long, you sort of can't be as creative and entrepreneurial as you really like to be. So I'm looking forward to taking this company and really spreading my wings, so to speak, and becoming as entrepreneurial as I can be. So Russell Dusan 2.0, essentially, because you had built a really successful company and then you had the ability to be acquired and to be taught from the biggest promoter in the world. So you probably picked up a handful of new lessons from those guys. So should be a whole new day. Yeah, I really think we have a
2: great game plan moving forward.
1: You've always been headquartered in the South. Is that the game plan to focus there? Or you had actually done a lot more territory as an indie. You did runs and full tours. Is that part of the bigger plan? Yeah, the bigger plan would be that. I was born and raised in New Orleans and, and loved it city, know how to promote and sell a lot of tickets in the South. Awesome. Russell, you sound right here on Promoter 101. We wish you nothing but luck and excited to see what's to come with DMG.
0: Yeah, we wish Russell the best of luck with his brand new venture.
1: Hi there. This is Jody Goodman from Live Nation, San Francisco, Northern California, and I am on Promoter 101 with Stiney in the house.
0: Up next, Hillary Zuckerberg talks Why Hunger, artists against hunger and poverty. Welcome to the podcast, Hillary.
3: Thanks. I am happy to be here.
1: Tell us about Why Hunger. What does Why Hunger do?
3: So Why Hunger was founded by Harry Chapin in 1975 and radio DJ Bill Ayers, who was on WPLJ in New York for like 40 plus years in this midnight show on Sundays. You know, Harry and Bill just had a vision that in a world where there was clearly enough food for everyone to be fed, no one should be hungry. The idea is that feeding people isn't just the answer, right? So what we believe in is we believe in supporting communities on the ground, grassroots groups. Some of them include food banks and food pantries, but some of them are also like urban farms and urban gardens and farm workers and all the people that are involved in our food system who need to come together to find grassroots solutions to ending hunger and poverty. And that also means that we're going to be focused in on root cause issues. Here's the thing. If you're in a community in New York City, let's say you're in East Harlem, Your needs, if you're someone who's struggling and can't feed yourself or your family, your needs look different than someone who lives in Oklahoma in a rural area. Your needs look different than someone in West Virginia. So the blanket policies that end up coming through government to support people aren't based on needs. They're based on blanket policies, numbers, and that kind of thing. So what we believe is that if communities come together and we can support them financially, with technical support, with bringing those community groups together to talk about best practices. If we can make that happen, those community organizations will be stronger and they will figure out what works for their own community and then they will help the people in their community. So for example, one of the things that we work on is making sure that food banks and food pantries are actually distributing healthy food to people. It's not just about a can of soup that's filled with sodium and fillers and all these things that really aren't going to nourish people, right? We need people to not just get fed, but we need them to get fed well, because what happens is you get fed food that isn't good for you, you get sick, and then you have another problem on top of the fact that you can't feed your family, right? Then you got to pay medical bills. So if we can focus food banks and food pantries into changing that mindset, and we can bring them together to have those conversations and talk about what works for them, so they can learn learn from each other. They can do better things for the people in their communities. It's all these basic human needs that need to be met in very specific ways for different people. And people in communities know what their needs are, and we need to make sure that they're met. That's what Why Hunger does.
1: Okay, so let me let me see if I've got this. As Why Hunger, you guys are using the channels that exist through the food banks and the farms and the other distribution centers to bring them all together and focus on a granular need of what they need to help the people in their communities better. And not just with a blanket policy of, this is what America needs, but this is what they need in Columbus, Ohio versus what they need in Detroit. And you use your technology and your resources and your networks to help bring all of these resources together to do what's best for the people in that community and to give them the resources of what they need most in that particular community.
3: Do I have that right? Yes. Exactly. It's about building movement. It really is. Right. We see social change happen when movements come together. There is a social change that needs to happen around hunger and poverty. And that's what we want to help fuel.
1: Well, let's see if we can do some good and see if some of our listeners will help out. How can people help? Why hunger and contribute directly to the cause so you guys can do more good? Where can they go? How can they help? Call to action right here, Hillary.
3: I love it. The top two ways is they can go to whyhunger, whyhunger.org slash donate. And you can donate $5, $10, whatever it is, you can donate.
1: And that's tax deductible, right?
3: It is. You can go Look to your that. company and get matched donations, all that stuff. But I think knowing who a lot of your audience is and what my job is, my job is to work with musicians and celebrities who are interested in this work and want to raise funds and awareness for our work and our partners' work? Again, we are—we don't take a top-down approach with with working with organizations. We are just here to help elevate them in a variety of ways. And one of the ways that we've done this, and I know a lot of a lot of organizations do this, but we've been doing it for a long, long time, is connecting grassroots partners around the country with tours and then allowing them to be on site. So it's a little different than some of what like. You know, reverb and headcount head do because we actually can get local organizations, the food banks, the pantries, the farm workers to come on site at shows in local markets. So, if you really want impact in a local market when you're touring, that is something that we do. And we've done it successfully and we really kicked it off Springsteen many years ago.
1: Okay. So, if there's an artist manager or a venue listening that would love to get you guys in the lobby helping out, they could email you directly?
3: Totally. Absolutely. And that's at Hillary, H I L L A R Y at yhunger.org.
1: Awesome. I love it. Giving back, promoter 101. I appreciate you making the time, and I'll find my way to the website today to do my part as well because I think it's a great thing you guys are doing and we need to get America fed. Thank you so much, Hillary. Thanks, Dan. Well, the website, one more time, is?
3: Our website's www.yhunger.org. That's w-h-y-hunger.org.
1: Donate today. Thank you, Hillary. Thanks, Dan. Love the work Hillary is doing. Keep it up. It's great that she's lending a hand and doing so well for the needy. Love Hillary. She's been a friend for years and she's doing great work out there. Please make sure you check out Why Hunger and support them and make a donation. I already did. I suggest you do as well.
2: Mitch Blackman from ICM on Promoter 101 with Dan Steinberg.
0: Tweets Tweets of the Week. Let's just tear off the band-aid and get into Tweets of the Week. When a competitor outbids you by such an amazing margin that instead of trying to match, you just urge the agent to confirm to your competition before they come to their senses. Hashtag take it, take it quick.
1: Just because he doesn't know any better doesn't mean I don't. Go ahead, take his money, just like the casino's taking his
0: chips. If someone views your profile on LinkedIn but does not friend you, is that an act of passive-aggressive disapproval?
1: Ah, uh, Stephen, would you please accept my contact request already, please? Maybe. All oh, you can ask for.
0: So the news is reporting on red meat. Fox and CNN have very different takes. And all I can think is how great it is that it is all they have to report on today, thankfully.
1: It's so fun that Fox actually had to retract the story after it was said and done, too. So... It was a fun story that had nothing to do with anything, and they had to take it back at the end. Go figure. So there you go.
0: That will do it for Tweets of the Week. You can follow Dan at the Jew on Twitter. I'm the Jew. This is Adam Stroll with Cervantes and AEG Denver, and you're listening to Promoter 101. In our featured session this week, we feature brilliant corners
1: artist management's Jordan Curland. The loyalty that your bands have shown you for what would be a small to mid-sized management firm mm-hmm. over the length of time you've kept them is rare in our industry to have acts as big as yours that have stayed loyal. It's clearly a testament to you in the industry. And I think there are a lot of younger people in the industry that would be curious to hear your philosophies and business practices that have made that possible.
2: Um. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, first and foremost, shows the integrity of our clients. They feel like they're being well represented and taken care of and don't feel the need to make a move. You know, obviously all artists are different and some get antsy and some don't, but you know, I I feel like for us, it's, it's pretty simple. It's, you know, artists first, we represent them. We listen to them. We sometimes don't agree with them and try to convince them to otherwise. But at the end of the day, it's our job to represent our artists in the way they want to be represented. You know, we also, you know, it's a lack of a better term, a no asshole policy for our clients. Life's too short. I want to work with artists that are respectful. You know, it doesn't mean a client isn't going to get upset or going to have their own set of peculiar needs. But at the end of the day, I think we work with, I'd like to say all of our artists are adults. It makes it much easier to communicate with them and to hold on to them as clients because they can see both sides of things. Oh, well, let's that. talk
1: about that for a second because you can't have a no asshole policy when yeah. you're starting out. I'm successful right. to a point where I get to pick and choose who I want to work with and yeah. my bar is fairly high. I've worked yeah, with yeah. almost everybody out yeah. throughout the years yeah. and now I only work with my favorite people and because I do touring for the most part, I don't need everybody. I can mm-hmm. work with very few people because you're in management, you, yeah. you have a select number of clients you can deal with anyway, so you can be a little more choosy at this point but i imagine when you started out like me you didn't have the ability to choose who you wanted to work with you had to get out there and work with whoever wanted to work with you at the beginning while you were learning and getting your skills to the level that you've honed them to now
2: yes that is absolutely accurate you know and i learned from experience i would say you know early on i had one client with addiction issues and you know this is when i was still in my mid 20s and i had one client who was very obsessive compulsive and not the nicest in the world. And I had one client who was very demanding. I learned from that. I wanted to spend my time. And again, that's not to say that, you know, everyone has their moments. I'm not going to sit here and say our clients are never upset with me or the company or they're, they aren't a challenge. But At the end of the day, I think we kind of attract, you know, the way that we manage attracts a certain type of client, if that makes sense. But yes, I would be lying if I sat here and said, I wasn't so fortunate to have an artist like Death Cab for Cutie who has done well for a long time and you know, provides a stability to me and the company that allows us to be more selective.
1: I've noticed, you know, Rob Lutz does the same thing about CA; They yeah. have a no outsell yeah. policy. Yeah. And I found that most of the people that have dealt with it as firm actually are very easy to deal with. And I've seen some people that have been asked to leave, but yeah. I don't think if they were a smaller agency, that would be as easy. I don't think you can be in the business two seconds and say, I'm not working with this person, this person, this person. I think you have to get to a level of success before you can start choosing. And clearly that comes over time and shows a level of success that you've earned that you can afford to decide who you want to work with at this point.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, too, as a younger manager... You know, I was lucky, worked for a management company. I moved up to San Francisco to work for um, David Lefkowitz in 1995. And David had a very big client in Primus at that time. And I was able to learn the ropes there. And I had access to clients that I probably, or I definitely would not have had access to if I was just one guy working out of my apartment. There was a small infrastructure and there was, you know, relationships and the perception of being at a, at a, at a firm, which were all accurate. So at the end of the day, if an artist called me up tomorrow who... Was a global star was known to be challenging and needed management i mean obviously we'd take a hard look at it but i think at the end of the day i wouldn't do it you know i'm 48 years old i've always set out to be successful in this business and i feel very fortunate and enjoy where we are but i've never set out to be the most successful person in this business it's not i think it's a balance of getting to work in this profession that i set out to work in when i was 20 and still be here doing it but also balancing between being a parent and having a nice lifestyle.
1: The fact that you live in San Francisco is an interesting thing because, you and you said you're not trying to be the biggest manager in the world. And if you were, you probably have to be in LA, New York or Nashville or London to pull that off. Well, you're close enough with an hour flight to LA. Being in the Bay, you've removed yourself from the middle of any of the biggest business hubs of our industry. Although we're living in a moment where and forget COVID, forget we're all yeah, working yeah. from home. But we're living in a moment now where it doesn't really matter where you live as much as it did when you made the decision to live in the Bay. Yes. As living in New York, Nashville, or LA, probably for you, New York or LA, yeah, really would have been more beneficial as far as the environment of being in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Now yep. that the industry has changed so much to a internet. Based platform via email, an occasional call and even DMs from time to time. Do you need to be in the same city as as New York or LA to be a big manager now? Can you or can you be just as successful living in Omaha if you already have the connections in place?
2: I think there's there's pluses and minuses. And, you know, not getting into my origin story, you know, I did live in LA right after I graduated from college. And, you know, I kind I, I wound up in San Francisco because of the job opportunity. And I did not expect that I would be here more than a year or two. But I do think that now it is easier to operate pre-COVID even, it's easier to operate from outside those hubs. But yeah, you have to work a little bit harder to stay on people's radar, you know, in terms of attorneys and, and labels and et cetera, as far as getting client referrals, I don't see X attorney walking out of the Bowery Ballroom on a Tuesday night who says, oh, I just picked up this client that's signing to X record label and they need management, right? So the flip side is I think in terms of how we make decisions and how I made decisions early on, I never got caught up in the lack of a better word in the industry bullshit of what to try to manage and what to sign. And we really were able to kind of chart our own course as far as our roster. And another nice thing is when I am in LA or New York, I get meetings because I'm not there all the time. Disadvantages also is I travel a lot more than I would if I was in LA or New York. But Let's say I'm traveling, if I lived in LA or New York, I'd be traveling 30% less than I do.
1: And let's acknowledge the fact that San Francisco is not exactly a small DMA. It's the fourth biggest market in the United States. When it comes to media market, mm-hmm. combining both, the entire bay, so yep. it's not a small market. And Greg's there, Sherry's there, Alan's yeah. there. You're gonna, yeah. you know, you've got a big Live Nation office with Jody and yeah. Michael there. The AEG folks, Golden Voice guys, are there. It's yeah. not a small market. Plus, Frank Riley's set up a yeah. fairly big independent shop there, if not the biggest yeah. independent uh, shop. Okay. As well as Tom Chauncey. Yeah, you've yeah. got a serious market there. So I don't want to yeah. undersell that you're not in a real market. Yeah. You're in the fourth biggest market in yeah. the country. So, I, yeah, I, mean, look, I think I we're think... making it, but it's not the fourth biggest music business.
2: No, market and the there's country. not, and it's, a, it's in a market that's been very challenged for artists over the last eight or nine years, but really since 1999 because it's been so expensive. There is not, you know, I do feel like there was a strategic advantage for a while being here at the onset of Apple Music, you know, when the music tech companies were real. We're here. We're in the Bay Area. They're not really anymore. Everyone's left. You know, most of the people have moved to LA or Nashville or New York. But there were a few years where it was really advantageous to be able to go down to Cupertino to play, play the iTunes folks a new record or running into them at shows. That gave me kind of a brief justify my existence being in the Bay Area at that point um, beyond just wanting to be here. Um, it's not
1: like you're like Fred and Dan 30 years ago no. when they started Monterey, where you're just completely on your own island, you know, yeah. it's,
2: no, no I mean, there's
1: a real city there.
2: Yeah, there's a real city here and there's a music community here. You know, there aren't a lot of managers anymore. There aren't a lot of labels. I mean, there was more. It's interesting, I think, the promoter side. It's certainly more competitive than when I moved here, you know, because when I moved here in nineteen ninety-five, I was really just Bill Graham Presents and some other smaller ones, but there were more managers, there were more independent record labels up here at that point. Now I think, you know, kind of the live music sector's grown, grown over the last almost twenty-six years that I've lived here.
1: So you got offices in San Francisco, New York, Seattle. Mm-hmm. And you've got a fairly big team. Deathcap for Cutie, obviously, is what you're known for at the end of the day. But you've got a strong client list across the board. So multiple offices and multiple markets. How does that benefit you having multiple offices and, and a team?
2: Well, I think the you know, the multiple offices, uh, you know, especially having a presence in New York is important for us. And I'd like our goal for 2020 before the world shut down was to have someone in L.A. as well, you know, quote unquote, boots on the ground. And, and, you know, as we were talking about, having boots on the ground in, in those markets where the, where the bulk of the industry is based. As far as our team, we're a small to mid-sized, I mean, we're a boutique management company, right? There's less than 10 of us full-time and we provide services. We have a touring director, we have a digital person in-house, but we're not a red light or artist nation or, or Maverick or what, what have you. But philosophically, we just, I've built the company in a way that we can augment the needs of, of whoever our partners are, you know, in terms of record labels, you know, and that's what we'll continue to do.
1: Now, a lot of management firms have very diverse artists that couldn't play together, but your your entire roster could actually make a great summer shed <laughs> Like you guys are... Yes. In this world of hipster to alternative yeah. and maybe classic alternative, it's like yeah. where Josh Ritter could play with Anadi DeFranco, but could certainly still play with Death Cab. And, you know, new pornographers could play with anybody on your roster. Yeah. And, you know, it's like soccer moms, maybe a little younger and hipper than the, you know, the average yeah. band there, but like they're all very hip. And any one of them could break a radio single at any moment. And usually at any given moment, one of them has.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, part of it is, you know, it's what we love. And I think as a manager, that's the most important thing is that you work with something that you really love and believe in and you could listen to all the time. And when you wake up in the morning before you go to bed, while you're brushing your teeth, et cetera. We have worked with things that don't maybe fit down the same lane. I mean, the first artist I ever worked with, we went to college together and I started managing him when I was a senior in college is Matt Nathanson. You know, I worked with Matt for 16, 17 years, a good deal of success towards the end of that relationship, but it can be challenging to know a lot of different worlds, right? To really know the players in a lot of different worlds. Not that we're, I feel like I can manage anything. I feel like our managers can manage anything, but we also know what our sweet spot is. And that doesn't mean that I wouldn't love to manage artists in other genres genres, but take Toro y Moi. You know, Toro has one foot in, in the world that you referred to, right? Like more of the indie rock or classic indie space. But he also has another world in, you know, more of the hip hop, soul, it's R&B, et cetera world. So, and that's something we have to, we we get to help him nav- navigate. And it's really fun to, to be able to do that too. As far as packages, we've done it over the years. Death Cab's taken out a lot of our developing artists over the years, which is awesome. They would never do it unless they actually liked a band because we've tried to put stuff on shows, on tours with them that they said no to as well but it helps. It really does help. And, you know, there are pitfalls to putting bands together on a bill. I can only imagine what it takes to get that Green Day Weezer Fall Out Boy tour that, you know, was supposed to happen last year together and how those bands feel at certain points, who's playing when and who's reacting to what the audience is reacting to. But, you know, I think we're about to enter a time next year when every artist in the world will be on tour. That packages are going to be very, very important if you want to sell tickets. That's going to be a whole, it's going to be a whole new world next year. So I
1: think the package that you just referring to that Green Day package with Weezer yeah. is impressive because what Rich had figured out with Ryan McElrath was that people do enjoy the event. Yeah. And there was something about when Lollapalooza used to tour in the amphitheaters, and you could see yep. all of these bands. Yep. And you could, if you could just make plans to get free for a day, and you could get four or five bands in that that you like, that would be awesome. So the yep. idea of taking three or four headliners and putting them together in the stadium and creating a bigger event than the normal show would make people excited for a one plus one plus one equals seven. And I I think we're going to see more of that because of the success of that tour was Mm -hmm. huge. And same thing with the Motley Crue Poison Depth Leopard tour. Clearly there's something that says stadium show means big rock show. And I think we remember it from the 80s, Monsters of Rock events, you know, Ozfest. The stadium just means monster size event More talent, more excitement, probably shittier seat and more expensive (laughs) because everybody's fighting to be up close. I mean, Metallica with Guns N' Roses in the stadiums, you know, in the early 90s. It's like there's something to that. And I think, you know, we've gone away from that and partially because it made more sense financially for the artists to play multiple nights in the amphitheater or headline their own show in the amphitheater. So it just got the the summer packages just became this thing, Mm -hmm. whereas the idea of creating something that we don't see as much of and getting back to the stadium days and seeing how much steel is running around the country at any given point has been a new day. It's it's, it's been a reinvigoration for the industry, I think, with figuring out new ways to package talent and getting a better bang for the buck for the audience instead of seeing one headliner we're giving you three headliners.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I, I think it was moving in that direction. Like, as you just said, it was moving in that direction prior to covid You know, we're seeing more and more packages. Death Cab last summer, you know, we took out Jenny Lewis for a number of dates. And those shows did super well because people want to see both acts and it's a way to stretch the dollar in a very competitive touring marketplace. I just think it's going to be even more intense next year because like I said, and as you guys know, like everybody is going to need to tour next year to make money. It is going to be a total shit show of artists on the road. I mean, for fans, it'll be great. You're going to be able to see everybody, but you know, we're, we're, we're likely to be in a recession, you know, who knows how people are going to be feeling about safety and the virus, but Artists will be out there and they have to figure out ways to be above the fray and and sell tickets because the other side of it is there's gonna be a lot of records coming out next year. I mean, I know we have clients who are holding off on putting out records this year because they can't tour on it. So you're gonna see a lot of album releases next year too. So the idea that because you have a new record coming automatically means you're gonna sell tickets. I don't know if that's gonna apply the same way. So, so
1: you're saying the music industry is going to be more competitive than
3: ever.
2: Yeah. I think the touring industry will be next year. Because also, you know, maybe likely some festivals won't be back. And I think, you know, the festival peak, I think we had already seen festival peak, you know, that was that was sort of scaling back a bit too. So uh, well, it's a pendulum,
1: right? Like, yeah, we'll we'll see, we'll see it come back and forth a little bit. And after mm-hmm. COVID gets goes away and everybody's yeah. vaccinated, I would think in a couple of years, Festivals, when they're completely safe again, will have a new reoccurrence again, and there'll be something exciting about getting back out there. Yeah, I think dirty field that we all hated being in the first place that we forgot about. We romanticize how great it is when you hadn't showered for four days and (laughs) have.
2: I think the complexion of festivals will change over the next you know handful of years. I think that was happening again. That was happening to it. You you just have to think of like everything has been put on pause, and some of those trends will continue, and some will will you know will, will change. I mean, having founded a boutique festival that ran for 11 years in Treasure Island, you know, I I just felt like, you know, what happened with festivals, and and this happens with any good idea, you know, you kind of, there are too many of them, they didn't, enough of them, many of them didn't have a point of view. And I think if you're going to have a successful long-term festival, it has to have a point of view, whether that's location-based, whether that's programming-based. You know, and I think you see that with the festivals that have lasted and continue to do well after a long, long period of time.
1: 2007 to 2018. Yeah. You were involved with Treasure Island. Yep. Now you got out at the perfect moment, right? It's just Mm -hmm. like right before the shit hit the fan with COVID, like you'd stepped away from that. Was that just organic?
2: No. I mean, honestly, we got out one festival too late. You know, our last year, (laughs) you know, we made a couple mistakes at the end. We were scouting locations. You know, back in 2006, you know, settled on Treasure Island, which seemed like the most obvious place for a festival to me, and I didn't understand why had there hadn't been more events out there. We knew that we couldn't stay there long term because the island was going to be developed, and we didn't know. We knew we'd get you know a few years in. We didn't know if it would be three years or ten years, and thankfully we got ten years, which was awesome. But you know, when we we took a year off. And the reason we took a year off is we thought we were going to move it to a spring festival and we felt like well rather than have it in october which is what we had been doing it you know rather than have it in october of 17 let's just come back in spring of 2018 we did not come back and in the spring we ended up coming back in the fall and we took it full year off we moved the location a lot of people uh we were fighting the perception of the fact i mean a lot of people thought treasure island was just done after the 10th year you know even though we were very clear you know, this is our last year on the island, but we'll be back, et cetera, et cetera. And also the climate had changed so much. You know, when we started Treasure Island, there were very few festivals in the fall, you know, as us and ACL and maybe a, a few other ones. And fast forward to, you know, 2016, 17, 18, you know, there's a festival every weekend starting in April, basically. So at the end of end of October, you're dealing with festival, you know, mid-October, it's festival fatigue at that point. So, but yes, thankfully we, we you know, we thought about bringing it back again, even though we, we took a, a hit. In the last year, but we ultimately decided it was just time to retire it. You know, I'd love to, I would love to do another event. I think, you know, with noise pop, which is, you know, another part of what I do, it's less of what I do than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. But, you know, noise pop's goal has always been to present events, shows, et cetera, that don't exist in the Bay Area that we feel should. You know, and sometimes that's just taking an idea from another city. And sometimes it's just coming up with something that's totally unique to the barrier. Area. So when we started Treasure Island, had the idea for it, launched it in conjunction with another planet, we came up with the concept, found the location. You know, I like to say we drew the box and another planet filled it in. We wouldn't have been able to do it or do it nearly as well without those guys, obviously, and all their experience. And it was a, a true partnership all those years. But Outside Lands didn't exist yet. You know, we were, we were kind of the first standalone festival. I mean there were the radio festivals, Live 105 Alice, K Fog, et cetera. But we were we were the first standalone festival in, in the Bay Area.
1: Is Definitely. part of what happened with festivals in America, the transition from radio shows going away into festivals happening in over almost every market?
2: Well I think what you're seeing now, yes, I think that ultimately really you know took the wind out of the sails of the radio shows. But again, you know, look what the music industry does better than anything is take a good idea and and squeeze every last bit of a of goodness out of it, right? You could say that whether it's festivals, radio shows, vinyl, you know, that's what the industry does. So you kind of get to a, a mass of, you know, regular festivals and then every radio show, some even trying to do two a year. And you're like, well, you know, to us, people who work in the business is very easy to distinguish the difference between an 11 band bill at, you know, let's say Barclays Center for a radio station versus, you know, Governor's Ball. But to a fan... They just look at it as a most, you know, like, yeah, it's a different experience, but I don't, I'm not convinced that someone, a passive music fan really knows they're just going to, you know, paying money to go see a bunch of artists. And how many times do they want to do that per year? You know? So yeah, I think it's, it's an issue. So
1: as a high school student, I could see KTCL's big adventure at the Mm -hmm. beginning of the summer at Fiddler's Green, two stages. Yep. And then in August, Lollapalooza would either end or start in Denver every year. And It would be the same thing it would be fiddlers two stages sometimes three yeah and ktcl's big adventure seemed exactly like the same concept of show it was the same genre of acts and in some cases an act would be so hot they'd be actually be on both the summer show for ktcl at the beginning of the summer and back on the palooza lineup but i would get to start and end my summer with these two big festival shows, and Denver was always a Saturday. Obviously the radio show was always on a Saturday, but Palooza always gave Denver a Saturday. It was a big market. So I would get this experience of full day shows with two stages and popping back and forth between stages all day long. And I looked forward to that and thought it was great because it could exist. Now Palooza obviously was a tour before. It was a festival sit down in Chicago. It was a different experience, but I got to discover so many acts. I mean, I never would have seen as a suburban white kid in Denver ice cube in the middle of ministry and Pearl Jam. Like that never would have happened. I would never have seen that act at 17 years old.
2: No, of course not. Yeah. No, I I know. I mean, that was, but fast forward to let's say 2018 and how many outdoor multi-artist music events were there in Denver area?
1: What we've mostly talked about so far are live shows. Yes. As a manager, Mm -hmm. you've talked about your bands probably won't drop albums until they can tour on them, which mm-hmm. leads to live. Yeah. And they all have product ready to go. Yeah. You've just talked about the festivals you're involved with. You've talked about how much traffic there's going to be on the road. Yeah. How important is the live music for your bands to exist as far as getting known, financially supporting themselves, moving their product? How big of it is a challenge for artists to financially keep themselves afloat, finding other means of between just selling records and online content?
2: Uh, for our roster, it'd be very challenging. Touring is the foundation. And look, you know, Death Cab obviously has had a ton of radio success for a long time, but most of their money is on touring, plain and simple. So it's been a challenge for all of our clients to not be on the road. It's also what they love doing right? It's sort of, you know, they love being on stage with their bandmates. They love being in the studio with their bandmates. They love it being in the rehearsal space with their bandmates. So it has sucked. You know, the flip side is, and I I think, you know, without talking specifics, I think, you know, for some clients, this break from being on the road and having a hectic life has really, they've really benefited from songwriting, you know, been able to write songs in a way that they haven't in a long time because, you know, they're used to, Yeah, because what has happened, getting back to, you know, the festival culture is there's rarely just years off, right? It used to be, you know, you put a record out, you do your touring cycle, that touring cycle might be six months, might be 18 months or whatever, but then you take a break. Now it's, you know, offers come in to play this festival or that festival and you're like, okay, well, we'll play this because we need to make a little money to keep the lights on, pay for rehearsals, but, you know, et cetera. So some clients have really enjoyed the time at home. You know, some have had a hard time being inspired to write. You know, some really have had a hard time getting, getting into the groove in this new life. We do have some clients who have made records in COVID. We have well,
1: imagine a- if you're a very depressed band and everything you write about is depressed shit, this would be a great time for
2: death care. Yes, exactly, exactly. No, Kaichou, for sure. joke, Kaichou, joke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but uh, but you know, we've got, you know, we'll, we will have, we will have a, we do have some records coming out later this year and we will definitely have records out next year. Probably a lot of records out next year. So, but you know, get back to your your initial question. It, it'd be, it's, it is, it is the lifeline for all of our clients. You know financially and you know i think just as far as what they love doing that doesn't mean that there aren't other sources of income you know especially for songwriters but it's still the bulk of what how we make money
1: let's move on from your client list to talk about some of the things that you have done on outside of the business cuz you're involved with some nonprofit organizations you do some board work and you've done some political involvement too in some of the democratic campaigns so let's start there let's start with the politics like you've been very active in the in in getting democrats elected or trying to
2: anyway. Yeah well I I think my work in that regard really started in 2004 you know I would definitely credit Deathcap you know for wanting to be involved and do what they could I would also credit what happened in the 2000 election (laughs) to, you know, feeling like not wanting to- uh, That was Bush Gore, right? Yeah, Bush, you know, with Florida. It's, you know, but, you know, with feeling like I didn't want to stand on the sidelines. Um, But, you know, two things happened in 2004 that really proved my entry point to that. One was Death Cab being invited to be on the Vote for Change tour. And for a lot of people, you know, listening, they may not know what that was, but that was a tour that was organized by- a number of managers uh, for artists to go perform in swing states and try to garner support for John Kerry, who was running against Bush, who was going for his second term. Um, you have, We had, you know, Pearl Jam and Bruce Springsteen and the Dixie Chicks. You know, those were some of the headlining shows, Dave Matthews Band. Um, and then, you know, John Cougar, Jackson Brown, et cetera. And then you had smaller, you know, Death Cab and Bright Eyes. And I believe My Morning Jacket, if I remember correctly, three of the, you know, kind of support acts, smaller bands that got invited to go out and Death Cab toured with Pearl Jam for that. And ultimately Carrie lost, but it was something that we hadn't seen as an industry artist really band together. And it was the first time that Springsteen, I know this for a fact, because right before that tour was announced, there was a, a, a meeting in New York at the Bowery Hotel with all the, you know, many of the artists who were on the tour and we were kind of a media briefing and prep for, for PR, et cetera. And all the artists were sitting around in a circle, and Bruce Springsteen and Stephen Van Sant started talking about that this is the first time they had ever publicly endorsed a candidate. Um, So that was pretty neat. But, you know, it was that. And then 2004 was also the year I started to become friends with um, an author named Dave Eggers. Dave had an idea to release a benefit record to raise money for progressive causes around the election that we worked on. It was, it was called The Future Soundtrack for America. Uh, there was a book component as well called The Future Dictionary for America. So that got it going. I know this is a longer story than it needs to be, but that was it. Um, and you know, really every presidential election since then, I've done something. 2012, I was honored to be invited on to be on Barack Obama's entertainment advisory committee. And I did that in 2016 for Hillary as well. Um, what does that mean? You know, it's, you're basically, you're available. You, 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 we, I think we attended one in-person meeting for each of those. You're kind of available as a resource. You so know. your mind my trust, basically. Yeah, exactly. Say like, Hey, we have this idea. What do you think? Or, or look, we're trying to get Pearl Jam for an event. We don't have a good relationship with Kelly Curtis. Can you introduce us? You know, it could just be those type of things. You know, I've also in 2012 and 2016 and this last year done work outside of the campaigns, because honestly, I feel like. It's important to do the campaign work and to get artists to support candidates and do events. But, you know, I found it's almost more effective to do things outside of it. So Eggers and I, in 2012 and 16, we did projects. And then this last year, we did another one called Good Music to avert the Collapse of American Democracy, Volume 1 and 2, which were Bandcamp Friday-only releases that raised... Over $550,000 for voting rights organizations between the two releases. So, Death Cab this past December put out the George EP, which was five songs from artists in Georgia, you know, from Georgia, Cat Power, TLC, Neutral Milk Hotel, Vic Chestnut, and of course, REM. And, you know, that raised over $100,000 for Stacey Abrams' Fair Fight in a day. One of the things I love about my job, and, you know, whether it's the political stuff and the nonprofits I'm, I'm involved with, I love that I have the ability and the to, to do that stuff and that my career complements it and vice versa. And I have a roster of artists that tend to want to be involved. So it's a really fun and fulfilling, and I think important. I think, you know, what we've all seen over the last, you know, over the last four years and especially over this campaign, is like, you know, politics is culture at this point. And it's important that all of us get involved in whatever capacity we can. I think one of the silver linings of COVID is that I had more time on my hands to do more work around the election.
1: For an artist to stand up and support a candidate, which for Death Cab in Seattle, not such a big deal, but throughout the South, that may have an effect on fans. Obviously, they feel it's a big enough issue that they're willing to do it. But do they yeah. take risk in losing yeah. fans when they speak out like that? Can that Absolutely. be controversial and dangerous for the future of them in some of those red states?
2: I, I think so. I mean, I, I mean, they've been speaking out since two thousand four. You know, you're going to get blowback. Of course, there's people who don't agree, people who are going to say, you know, don't bring politics into music. I think politics, I mean, obviously, in my opinion, politics have always been intertwined in music, not for every artist. Not every artist needs to be Rage Against the Machine. But yes, there is an inherent risk of part of your fan base disavowing you because you don't agree with their political views. Now so, clearly,
1: Death Cab's fan base is a whole lot closer to their politics center for the most part than maybe the Dixie Chicks were back when they came out against Bush. And obviously, they saw a backlash in America. Yes. That affected them across the gamut and yeah. stopped them from touring domestically for a very long time. And still, that's got to be a historic lesson that not just with Death Cab, but any artist who's follows in the spectrum somewhere between Rage and Dixie Chicks or even on the other side, yeah. uh, Kid Rock, who's very out there Republican yeah. or Ted Nugent. There's got to be backlash on both sides. So that's got to be something that how strongly you feel versus can you afford to make this Yes. decision. And as a manager, it's probably got to be a hard thing to say to an act. This is a financial decision that you're saying, yeah. making when you're talking about this, but still you're advising them. So yeah. does that fall into that process of
2: counseling yeah, mean, before I don't, I don't think an act we, comes out publicly? I mean, I'm sure we've had those conversations. I think our artists are aware there's an inherent risk of sticking your neck out on anything, whether it's supporting a presidential candidate, whether it's being, you know, Bethany from Best Coast doing all the, all the work she did for PETA or Whatever, whatever stance you have, there's going to be someone that disagrees with it. And I think this is a bonus. We work with artists who are very principled and, and will stand by what they believe in. That's important. I don't like that, you know, politics now, it feels like football teams, right? Like you're either Democrat or Republican. Like, I don't, I'm not happy about how the way that's gone. And, you know, certainly we don't have to talk about why that's the case. But, you know, I wish I, I wish there was a beacon of truth somewhere that we could all look to and say, this is a trusted source of information but that's just not the world we live in right now. And I think, you know, artists, Look, if, if you're an artist that's not comfortable dipping your toe in the political water, and we have one, we have one that thought they did and they ultimately decided not to, that's totally fine. Everyone should do it at their own pace. But I do think, you know, the type of artists we work with do feel a moral responsibility to stick their neck out a little bit, whether it's gun control or environmentally or it's or it's politically.
1: And, and I want to point out, we're we're not so much talking about the political views of the bands or yeah anything else in the podcast I'm talking about the financial decision to yes. support come out and support an yeah. act and that I think that particularly is is part of the industry and the business and a decision so mm-hmm. on the other side of that if you had an artist that was right leaning and they wanted to go out and support the republican candidate and asked you to come in as their manager and help deal with the logistics yeah. of that, would that be a challenge for you as it didn't fall in with your political standpoint? Would that be a problem? I, th- I
2: think it would depend who the, I think it would depend who the c- political candidate was. I would have a really hard time if one of our clients was pro-Trump and wanted to, to do work to support that. If this was, you know, 2012 and we're talking about Mitt Romney, it would be a lot easier, you know, to swallow that pill. So I, in a case-by-case case scenario? I don't, I, I would have to say I've never managed, I don't think I've ever managed a artist that was Republican. I mean, I've definitely... Been with artists who I didn't agree about, you know, their choice of, you know, kind of the primary season or whatever, but you know, it's, it's, it's never come up, but I think it's like, I, I think it has to be case by case. So okay, I that was a big Ted Cruz fan. That would be a problem <laughs> at this point. I think as a manager, and this goes back to kind of our roster and our philosophy, it's like, there is a de- degree of self-selection that goes with clients. Like of who, who calls us up and who wants to talk to us and who, you know, so I think that's that is that is part of this process too. All
1: right, let's go back to the nonprofit organizations. Your involvement in that across many different organizations, you've given a lot of your time to nonprofits. How'd yeah. you get started in that?
2: I think maybe the Stern Grove Festival, which I've now been on the board of for 20 years, 19 years, was probably the first. Stern Grove is an a free outdoor summer music series in San Francisco that's been going on for over 80 years at this point, point. and it's 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 great, and it's a beautiful meadow in the in the, in San Francisco proper. Um, get about ten thousand people in there, and you know each weekend is is different. You know one weekend might be the San Francisco Sym- Symphony, the next weekend might be Morris Day in the Time, the next weekend might be Mitski. Actually, this actually was a season, but that's been really great. And I, I wanted to do that because I was a fan of Stern Grove and really wanted to get more involved in the community. You know, from there, I, I just think it's you know kind of again going back to that vote for change tour future dictionary and soundtrack for america it just kind of started plugging me into that world more but you know at the end of the day it's really you know i've always had a bit of an activist streak and you know my mother founded a nonprofit organization when i was six years old my father has always been given time to nonprofits and given money to nonprofits. so it's kind of in my in my dna a little bit you know the ones that i'm on right now one is called the lab and it's an experimental art space in san francisco in a historic building in the mission district and you know visual art is a passion of mine McSweeney's, which is the publishing company and that publishes books, and also the McSweeney's quarterly magazines, and then also the the website, the McSweeney's Internet Tendency, that was founded by Dave Eggers, and reading and literature is another one of my passions. So right now, I've kind of got this really sweet—it's—it's—it's it's, it's a sweet spot, and that I'm getting to do stuff, all things I'm passionate about that don't directly, you know, my my work background helps, but they're not things that I would normally get to be doing on a day to day basis. So that's really really fun.
1: No, I mean you've got three offices. A large artist roster, particularly for a midsize management yeah. company, you're involved in festivals, you're involved with nonprofits, you're involved with the campaigns, you have a family, you're hands on with your son. Yeah. How are you finding time to do all of it? I mean, it seems overwhelming.
2: It's it's not. I mean, it it can be, you know, like, look, I have a board call Tuesday night zoom, you know, from like six to seven thirty or seven, you know, whatever. And you're like, kind of like, Oh, you know, after a day of being on Zoom, I want to, you know, but it's, I, I don't, I think it's nourishing for me, honestly, that I get to do this stuff. You know, I feel so fortunate that I'm one of the reasons I wanted to be a manager is because I love the diversity of what we get to do every day. You know, I wasn't interested in being a publicist, let's say, because I, I wanted to do things outside of just press. And as a manager, we, we oversee everything. Noise pop was a natural progression from what I was doing as a manager. You know, when I became friends with Kevin Arnold, who had founded the festival five years before I got involved. And I think the nonprofit work is too, you know, I think it keeps me excited about everything and it all, all of it informs the other work I'm doing. I mean, yeah, it can get stressful and time-consuming, but the people I work with, you know, my staff and my partners are so great and so competent that, you know, if I'm, If I'm a little bit unavailable for a couple of days because of other responsibilities, I don't have to worry about anything falling through the cracks.
1: So we kind of skipped at the beginning your origin. So let's go back to how you found your way to the industry.
2: I've always been a giant music fan. And, uh, you know, starting at age six when I was collecting every Kiss record. But, you know, when I was in college, I went to a small liberal arts college, Pitzer College outside of Los Angeles in Claremont. I grew up in Chicago area and I went to college and, and, um, I started writing music reviews for the school magazine. And through that, I thought I wanted to be a music journalist. And I also started meeting, you know, publicists at record labels who were pitching me on, you know, or I started meeting college reps at record labels who were pitching me on writing things, you know, about artists. Uh, The summer before my senior year, I went to New York and I interned for a management company my junior year was kind of a light bulb went off that was like, Oh wait, maybe, you know, there's actually, I started to realize that there's a business behind it. Like I didn't, I think I loved writing, but I, I also wasn't sure what else I could do around music. You know, this is pre-internet, right? So it's not like everything's out there. So I just kind of, I was like, Oh wait, there's a whole business behind this. So I, I went to New York. I interned at a management company for summer, which man, uh, it's it's defunct. now. it's called seriously Inc. Um, two, two managers, Roger, uh, Kramer and Jim Grant, they're both in the business, both great guys. Um, who they and rep at the time? Uh, Living Color was their big, big oh. artist. They had a few other art acts as well. It was a really great experience for me, but I, I went back to, for my senior year in college and I wasn't sure I wanted to be a manager. I thought maybe I wanted to did a record label, but my friend, good friend, Matt Nathanson had just put out a CD, self-released a CD. So we decided we were going to work together. I was going to be his manager, which, you know, at that point was, you know, like dropping off a CD at a coffee shop to get him on an open mic night or, you know, those type of things. But, you know, it was managing, right? Like, um, and then I did, I interned at Geffen Records, my fall semester of my senior year, uh, Claremont, thirty five? was 35 miles east of L.A., which, which equated to about a two-hour drive in I-10 traffic getting in in the mornings and coming back. And again, this is, you know, pre-cell phone, pre-internet. So those were some pretty long, long drives with a, a large container of iced tea and a bunch of CDs. I interned my second semester at a now-defunct uh, small record label called Imago. Um, who Henry Rollins, Amy Mann were on that label at that point. And then I decided I actually did want and I started, I booked a festival. I, I co-produced a festival on campus my senior year. And at that point, I said, I actually did want to be a manager. When I graduated, that was my goal, but I didn't find a job as a manager. I, I got hired. My first full-time gig out of college was answering phones at the Performance Rights Society ASCAP. And that job was, you know, the stepping stone to then you maybe be an assistant and then hopefully you become a membership director there. Two weeks into my job at ASCAP, I got a call from David Lefkowitz's assistant because I had sent my resume up. I had booked one of their clients for the festival I curated on campus. And I'd sent my resume after. And about nine months after I sent my resume, I got a call and said, hey, we've got a job opening. Do you want to come interview for it? And I went up over, remember, this was President's Day weekend, 1995. I went up, I interviewed, got offered the job gave notice at ASCAP and I was living in San Francisco two weeks later. And thinking that, you know, as I said earlier, that I'd be here a year or two, you know, it'd be a great opportunity, to get to work for Primus, which is a band that I love. There were other clients as too, the Melvin, Melvin's Charlie Hunter, a really cool eclectic roster, you know, Les Claypool from Primus had Prawn Song Records, which was through uh, mammoth and now defunct record label. So there was a lot going on. And I just thought, what
1: year is this roughly?
2: 1995.
1: So, so Primus was really big at that moment.
2: Yeah. Primus had just, I mean, it's like Primus Jerry was and, a race
1: car driver moment, right?
2: Yeah. Well, it was actually pork soda had come out, I think in 93 or 94. That was a record after sailing the seas, but yeah, they were, they were, you know, big artists. They had headlined Lollapalooza the summer, in 1993. They were, it was putting out. time. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and they were one of my favorite bands at that point. And so it was a, it was a dream job other than the fact that I literally was getting paid $8 an hour I went from, you know, ASCAP, although it was a, not the job I wanted answering phones, it was, you know, your full benefits, good pay, you know, for being a 22-year-old, you know, summer Fridays, you're done at five o'clock type thing to going to, you know, a much, you know, working for less. And, but it's what I wanted to do. So I did that. And I started, you know, in the low, low person on the totem pole. And I, I worked my way up and you know, I continued to ma- manage Matt Nathanson on the side, and um, after a couple of years, picked up a couple of my own clients. Started working on Noise Pop, and then I left in um, beginning in 1999 and started my company, like Sidegeist as Management. And my roster at that point was Matt Nathanson, Creeper Lagoon, who was signed to DreamWorks Records, a band called Beulah, who was becoming a pretty big, you know, indie act at that point, and Noise Pop. And I started my company, and you know. I know this is already a very long story, but the short version is it was a struggle. Um, unsurprisingly, 2003, Death Cab hired me. I'd been friends with them for a number of years. Um, it was six weeks before, maybe eight weeks before transatlanticism came out. Before transatlanticism, Death Cab was you know, selling 55, 60,000 records on Barsook, which was huge for that era of indie rock bands, right? Because this is transatlanticism came out and blew the doors off of that. You know, that record is just about platinum at this point. You know, during the life of that record, it went, you know, when, you know, the proper life of that record went gold. And, you know, there are a lot of reasons for that, but other than being a great record, but, you know, the indie rock was having a moment and iTunes store was in full swing and the pitch work effect and the OC and all these things. But that completely changed my career, obviously you know, went from being, feeling like I was a painter without the right canvas, you know, feeling like I knew what I was doing, but I just didn't have the right client. And to really get involved with Death Cab at that time um, and have a relationship with them already, it um, was just amazing. And, you know, it was, it was two years of insanity of, you know, transatlanticism and then signing to Atlantic and then plan. So really about three years of insanity. And then I was able to look around and figure out what type of company I wanted to build. This brings us to 2006, and I'm just going to fast forward. So, you know, the company's gone through different iterations you know, some managers have been in the company and left. You know, some managers, you know, didn't, you know, what for whatever reasons. Some clients left. Some clients didn't work out. You know, 2018 we merged with two other managers, Lever and Beam, who at the time was managing Saint Vincent and Slater Kinney in the estate of Sharon Jones, and then Josh Rosenfeld, who runs Suk Records, but was managing Fanagram. Um, unfortunately, that merger didn't work out with Lever and Beam. But Josh is still. A partner at the company. And we, you know, we had changed our name to, from Zeitgeist Artist Management to Brilliant Corners Artist Management. And that's where we are today. So Josh is the person in Seattle. He's still based in Seattle. That's where Barsook is. He, he had put out Death Cab's first four records and we became close through that. You know, the bulk of our staff is in San Francisco and we have one person in New York right now. When we, we, when we merged with Lover and Beam, they were primarily based in New York, but some things didn't work out in that regard. So that's the uh, long version. <laughs> I probably skipped over some important stuff, but that's really it.
1: From the start to the end of your business, you have a clear theme Mm -hmm. and that is hard work working with the artist and making their vision happen seems to be the cornerstone of all of that.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think you have to just kind of check your your ego at the door as a manager, right? Like every artist is different. I mean, we tend to, you know, I think the artists we gravitate towards and the artists that gravitate towards us tend to be more involved in their business. You know, it's not, we don't have anyone that's that's just wants to know which leg of the pants to put on first in the morning and where to be, you know, all of our clients, at least one member in the, the band really is involved. And I like that. I think the collaborative nature of how we work with artists is really great. Um, but when I say checking the ego at the door is there's a lot of times when we don't agree, or we might try to convince an artist to do something differently. And if they're, you know, at the end of the day, it's their career and their legacy. And that's our job to guide them through it. Give them advice that we believe in knowing full so well that you might tell two artists the exact same thing. And one artist ends up very far down the road and one barely budges, but you just, you don't, you don't know. I think it's, I also say this to our clients all the time is, you know, our audience knows their fan base better than we do because they're in clubs with, or they're, they're playing, whether it's, you know, clubs or amphitheaters to them every night, you know, they see them, you know, I'm not out there on the road with all of them every day they are. So it's important for it to feel like a partnership for us.
1: Well, it clearly shows why the business has been such a success, and you've seen the loyalty from your acts for the long stretch. Because it's it's really something to be said, because in our business, loyalty is not really a huge cornerstone. You see acts jump from place to place. There are exceptions, but- Yeah. Not a ton of them, but, you know, I mean, Irving's had the Eagles forever. Yeah. So there are some exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, it's not spoken of loyalty on the level that you have received it. And obviously, it has something to do with your relationship with your ex and your ability to do the
2: job. Yeah. Well, thank you. And look, I, and also it's, you know, it's not only me, it's my team. You know, Joe Goldberg, who's now a partner at the company, has been with me for almost 13 years and he's incredibly hardworking and great. But I think, you know, look, if we're, as long as we're honest and we work hard and, There's no bullshit going on. We don't have an alternate agenda other than trying to do what's right for our clients. Not like we haven't lost clients over the years. We have, because every, like in life, many relationships time out. You know, I've had a client stolen from me. You know, like this is the business. I've been in the business for a really long time. This stuff happens. So you just... So who was the manager that stole the act and who was the act? (laughs) I would love to say it on this podcast, but I'm not going to. It wouldn't be that hard to figure out if you look through the past clients. (laughs) But I had a manager who worked for me for six years and who built up a really nice roster and we parted amicably. You know, it was just time for that person to kind of do their own thing the same way as part time for me to do my own thing leaving Lefkowitz's office, you know, there's one way to do that. And then there's another way to do it. But look, the fact that I've been in this business so long, it's only really happened to me once is kind of amazing. (laughs) So
1: normally uh, I would ask a lesson for the young kids coming up behind us, but I think that is the best lesson. It's not, if you leave, it's how you leave that really sets the tone for the future and the continued relationship, because you can leave and possibly come back or possibly do things together in other joint ventures, but it's all about how you How you part, and how you communicate that, and what you take when you leave, and the way you do it—that sets the tone for the future relationship with the people that you were working with.
2: Yeah, and look, it's a small business. It's a really small business. It might be growing again. Well, not right now, but you know, it's maybe growing a little bit. But like, it's a small business, and you run into people. There aren't a ton of bridges to burn before you become an island.
1: Man, what a lost or, opportunity. Had you said Treasure Island said I. They're right there. I
2: right know. There. I know. You're right. Shit. But look, there's try to represent your business the same way you try to lead your life, you know, and that's it's that simple. At the end of the day, I want to wake up and feel good about about myself. And that's not to say, like, you know, sometimes we'll work with an artist that it's not the right fit, you know, or maybe it was the right fit for two years, you know, same way, with whether it's a friendship or a romantic relationship, sometimes people change, needs change, you know, et cetera. So
1: it does really parallel romantic relationships, your business relationships, because yeah. the amount of interaction you have with, the, I mean, I talk to my partner, Jason Zink, sometimes more than I talk to my wife on a given yeah. day. Yep. It just is that involves you you know everything about that person when you're in business with them and you're interacting that much it just happens
2: yeah and you know the goals of an artist might change to point and we had this happen with an artist who who felt like they wanted to be more of a pop artist or you know more of a mainstream artist and they felt like they stuck out like a sore thumb on our roster and we weren't really the ones to guide them there so it's like what do you say well that sucks but you're like okay you're right that's not where my passion is You just have to kind of check your ego at the door and say, okay, well, that that sucks, but that was kind of the right thing for both of us. It's really not fun, just like it's not fun being in a shitty romantic relationship or friendship. It's really not fun being in a relationship with an artist that doesn't want to be there, vice versa.
1: Jordan, I have had so much fun talking to you. Organically, this has been one of the most entertaining hours I've had since COVID started. I've really enjoyed this, and I've been looking forward to this since, we. I think, it's been a year and a half since we've like yeah, been going remember, back and forth. Going, when can we work, do this? Oh yeah. So okay. I've been really looking forward to this. I was kind of hoping we were going to be able to do it in person, so we could go get drinks later. But
2: yeah, yeah, we'll have um, to we'll, we'll, we'll have to we'll do a cyber Zoom and, soon. Yeah, yeah, we'll do the drinks part soon. But yeah, thank you. This was a blast.
1: Jordan Carlin, manager extraordinaire, right here on Promoter One Hundred One.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Jordan is impressive. Thrilled to finally have him right here on Promoter One Hundred One.
2: Hey, this is Brian
3: O'Connell with Live Nation, and we are on Promoter 101.
1: The quote of the week comes to us from author of Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Conflict brings out truth, creativity, and resolution. I like that quote. It makes you think. Plus... It gives me a chance to promote Saturday morning at 8.30 on Clubhouse. We'll be talking about Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. See what I did there? Good promotion right here on Promoter 101. I'll be there.
3: This is Andrea Johnson from ICM Partners, and you're listening to Promoter 101.
0: This concludes our show, but you can write us an email at, at promoter 101net if you miss us and want to catch
1: up. Hey, that'll do it for this week's Promoter 101 Kids. But hey, we'll be back next week with a brand new show featuring a star venue manager from the beautiful city of New York. So just be looking for that one. I don't want to give any hints away, but let's just say her initials are LJ. It could
0: be almost anybody. Thanks for having me, Dan. And thanks for Luke for not being here so I can fill in for you. And now that some shows are starting to play, we're back to wishing you sold out shows for the
1: months to come. Oh, it's so good to hear that again. So good to hear that again. And before we go, we got to tell you that one last thing. Call your mother. She Call your mother. Hi there, my name is Gary Spivak.
2: I am the Executive VP, Head of Talent at Danny Wimmer Presents DWP, and you are listening to Promoter 101.